I'm Todd Harrington, and you're listening to the Gray Matters Podcast. Along with my co-host, Tony Hoyland, each episode explores a special guest's lifelong passion. There'll be a bit of nostalgia, but mostly it's our guest's personal story of how they discovered their passion and how it evolved over the years. Welcome to the Gray Matters Podcast. Okay, our guest today is Simon Boyle. He's award-winning social entrepreneur, chef, founder, and the vision behind Beyond Food Foundation and Brigade Bar and Kitchen in London Bridge. Since 2005, he's made a significant social impact working to help homeless people across London rebuild their lives, imparting his passion, skills, and knowledge of cooking and food. He's seen firsthand the power of food as a catalyst to break the cycle of homelessness and poverty. Beyond Food directly impacts the lives of many struggling people every year. Without further ado, Simon Boyle. Hey, Simon. Hey, hey guys. How you doing? Nice to, nice good, to talk good. to you. Well, yeah, before we get started, we're gonna I, let me introduce you to my co-host. He's a talented musician. He's a voiceover artist. And I guess keeping with the food theme, he's considered a handsome and talented dish himself. <laughs> uh, my co-host, Tony Hoyland. Tony, oh say hello to Simon. Hey, Simon. How are you, man? <laughs> hey, Tony. No, don't, uh, don't let me down now. Don't let me down. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, my he's God. Each a, intro gets better. I, I never know what's coming, you know. Yeah. It's, it's you know, that's best. a little surprise every time. Um, okay. So, Simon, we're, you know, unlike, you know, you are obviously doing some amazing things, but we like to go back with the great matters and go back to when it all started when this passion you know whether it's influence your family and friends and where this food let's start with food where did mm. simon first tap into his passion for food oh you know i i was born in scotland and brought up in the north of england and ended up my school life down in the south of england so it's quite a mixed bag uh from the british isles um, and my mother was uh, from Italian heritage, and both my parents were Scottish. So, so really, kind of, kind of a mix. So, I'm a, you know, I was born in the seven, early seventies, seventy two, uh, where food in the in the Great Britain was not at its best. Let's just say. So, I went through my childhood eating uh, really, really. You know, I had a great family, and they they cooked all the time, but they had this Italian influence. Uh, but it was very, you know, those staples, the spaghetti bolognese, the roast chicken, all in the middle of the table sharing. And, you know, I've got two brothers, so, you know, we would fight all the time, kicking each other under the table, but having a great, having a great banter at the same time around the dinner table. That's that's where it came from. Um, and food is, you know, for me, has is, always been a powerful tool, so very quickly realized that when I cooked, and I'm talking really early, so biscuits and cakes and stuff, that my whole family would sit around the table and enjoy it together. And that was a, that was the catalyst. Did you, did you, do you, but did you have a moment where, not a moment, it's harder, that you just said, wait, I actually might want to do this for a career? Uh, yeah. When did that start? Yeah. So I can, I can the three, three moments that really jump out to me. When I was 11 years old, um, I read an article about um, the Savoy Hotel, um, and I was like, "Wow, look at that! That's amazing!" I never, because I was a northern lad, so I didn't know about hotels like that. When I was thirteen, I watched a TV show called Take Six Cooks, and it had um, 
had some very famous chefs, called, uh, one called Anton Mosman, as an example, ended up working with him. The Brew Brothers were another couple. Um, and I uh, was like putting the two things together. So, oh, do you remember that hotel? Oh, these are these chefs. This is where they work. Um, and then when I was 15, 16, and, and realizing that school was, you know, my results at school were never going to add up to anything. Um, and then it was like, but, and I had been cooking quite seriously at that point. So it was like, okay, I better do that. <laughs> Wow, uh, and so so that and that just continues. So you you studied, you went to school, but you was, it was a culinary school. You didn't go to, to university over there. Typical. Yeah. So my yeah. my schooling, i.e., my educational schooling, I used to run home, peel potatoes, make shepherd's pie, um, to, anything to avoid doing my homework, and I pretty, right. much, I pretty much avoided it all the way through. Well, but we can relate but, to that. Yes, we we avoid homework. <laughs> the um and my parents were. Bless them. They were like, "Well, how can you have a go at him when he's producing a shepherd's pie like that?" Um, so I kind of kept my head on, you know, away from um, the, the kind of the, fry, the hot frying pan of justice of not doing your homework. So yeah. I got away with it. But, but when I left school. My dad was like, um, "Look, you know, chef's going to be really difficult. So why don't we not try to get you into hotel management?" Um, and of course, my, my results were, I, did, I just didn't get enough, good enough results. And we'll come back to education because I'm pretty, uh, but at this point, I thought it was a massive failure, by the way. Um, oh, so, so I was like, okay, well, let's try that then, Dad. And we went up to the college and of course, you know, it was like, well, no, he's, he hasn't got the results. He can't do that. So uh-huh. it's, it was chef it, chef it was. And I went through the first, I went to a local college. It, it was the same as school. I was uninspired. I wasn't being, my horizons were not broadening, they were narrowing because my vision of what I wanted to do was very different to theirs. And very quickly I stopped attending. Um, and then this crucial day happened when I was sat in, um, I don't know what you call it in the States, but we call it a student union, basically the student bar. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about three o'clock in the afternoon. I'd had three or four pints of beer. Um, little skinny lads so had gone to my head already. And, uh, <laughs> and all of my classmates my fellow chefs uh, student chefs had walked in with suits on so i was like what are you doing they said oh we've had our interviews and i was like interviews oh. interviews for what and they said uh-huh. these very famous chefs are here and they're interviewing everybody that's applied for this uh, new apprenticeship scheme uh, with like the top chefs in london so i ran <laughs> out of the bar up into the faculty uh, building and burst into the room where we were doing the interviews to get told to get out and wait outside. I was there for an hour and a half. Uh, eventually, I was allowed in and sat in front of me with three very famous chefs and my college lecturer, tutor. And he introduced me as uh, the biggest waste of space. And oh, my God. Wow. No. Yeah, yeah. They were like this, this you know, and, and I was obviously I'd had a couple of drinks, so... So I just was like, swore my head off. I was like, no, 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 no. You know, you don't understand. And I just went into this rant about, you know, wanting to cook amazing food, but not having the opportunity to do that. And the college didn't have enough money. So we were sharing ingredients and equipment. And, you know, this wasn't the place to learn how to cook well. And I wanted to be the best chef in the world and wasn't able to. And I felt like I had my arms tied behind my back. Anyway, um, one of the chefs, very famous guy called Brian Turner, he said, shut up. 
that's the that's the that's the beer talking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he and he just asked me a couple of simple questions and then asked me to leave. And um and I did. I just left and I thought, well, that was that then. And out of I think they had two hundred and fifty people apply, and I was the only one that got it. I love it. Wow. I love it, man. That's amazing. Yeah. And so I went through the first six months in within the new apprenticeship. It was in a different college. I had to leave home to do it. And um, within the first six months, they started to assess us and give some views on where we, they thought they should place us because it was a work-placed apprenticeship after the first six months. And um, serendipity sort of fell into place because I was placed at the Savoy. And I had never oh talked God, about that's it. That's amazing. So, so that's 17 so cool. years old. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, listen, it was. It was a baptism of fire. It was in 98 other chefs, which were all good 10, 15 years older than me. Um, it was. It was like being in the army. Um, it really was hard. But you know, I learned to cook. So they made it hard for you because you're a young guy. You just, they made you work work for your uh, for your position, if you will. Yeah, definitely. But it's definitely you know weakest out first, and so yeah. they're, all they're yeah. going to do is is weed out the people that aren't good enough mm. um, because it's hard, you know. Especially this was this was the eighties, the late eighties, early nineties. So the Savoy was under a lot of pressure at the time. Um, financially but also to keep all of its accolades and you know it's it's in my opinion one of the finest hotels in the world so a, a young scrawny little 17 year old who can you know screw up the hors d'oeuvres <laughs> if nobody's <laughs> looking needs to be watched over <laughs> right yeah. I mean, it's, but, it's interesting though you, you about the guys who gave you the job they obviously res- recognize your passion so what do you think it, that, that that they saw differently i mean they just not other than you had a buzz on and you yelled at them what mm-hmm. what was it why 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 you could you feel you look at food in some some way and you if you want to do it different is that what you express to them you don't yeah. want to just be typical yeah that, that group of chefs though from what the, what we it's now called the royal academy of culinary arts i'm now a fellow of it um, oh, wow. i was a guinea pig for what is now probably the finest cooking course in, in certainly in europe if it's not the world um they only take 10 people every single year it's very, very hand chosen and, and i think what they saw is a raw talent of a desire to reach excellence so that was just somebody that was prepared to literally shout <laughs> and and scream about what he was trying to achieve, even though I was young and I couldn't, I didn't know what I was trying to achieve. I just had this feeling. Um, and you know what? This week it's quite. I've just remembered this week I was in a restaurant called Fallow with the Royal Academy because it's going through some changes. So just this week, uh, Brian was at that at that dinner at that lunch as well, and we were talking about excellence and, and what does excellence mean and it's and it's changed you know excellence in food isn't just about pretty pictures on plates anymore it can be right. the best barbecue truck you know mm-hmm. and in a food market it can be a beautiful restaurant in the center of a, of a, of a vineyard it can be anything excellence can be anything in it if it's in the right context yeah yeah, and so you you just like you're constantly trying to bring new innovation to your 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 cooking and your, the passion you see. It's not like the other students perhaps were like just following the the recipe, if you will. Yeah, I think so. And you know, it was the the raw talent, and that's what the the academy was looking for. That they were at the time they were thinking we're not getting enough innovation, young enough young raw people into the top end of the market, and so let's go and find it ourselves rather than rely on local colleges you know sharing chickens and 
bowls of mayonnaise because they can't afford one each. They're not, you're not going to get what you need out of that. You need, um, you know, you need people to be able to step out of whatever their comfort zones are and the institution's comfort zones to, to reach that kind of uh, talent. Well, since you were 17, along the way, was there ever time you say, what am I doing? Did you think about that this is not, I mean, I love food. Maybe I just should eat it and not make it. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, listen, on the, on, after a 17, 18-hour day and everyone's treated you badly, it's, um, yeah. you know, you have those doubtful moments. You also get them when, you know, you're, you're striving for something and you feel like you're the only one. Because I feel like, even today, I feel like that. And even though I've got a great team, I still feel that sometimes I'm on my own train. Hmm. Um, and I'm, you know, so I, you st- I still go through that, absolutely. Um, and I, d- I know, no, I'm not the best chef in the world, you know, because time's gone on, things have changed, um, talents have grown, um, you know, different innovations have happened. And, and, and as you know, I've taken a slightly different path with my food now. So I don't yeah. cook every single day anymore, so I can't keep at the top of it. But, um, you know, what I do have is those foundations, and I'll never forget them, the Savoy Gang of those foundations, and I'll, and I'll, I'll never lose them. That's so I'm right. very so, grateful. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you think the, the, the 17-year-old Simon, what would, what's truly different now other than, I mean, as far I know the food's changed, but you, Simon, how are you different now? Is it still the same 17-year-old in a way? Yeah, God, I'm the same person, same 17-year-old. I literally haven't grown up. Um, I'm, I'm as immature as I was then. Again, as we I can relate. Now. Both of us yeah, can relate. <laughs> well, considering you have a, you're sitting here having a pint right now talking to the interview, yeah, you're 17. There so you go. I, yeah, yeah. And, I'm, and I've got an 18-year-old who's a musician, Tony, he'll be glad to Oh, know. fantastic. What's um, he playing? And, he, and we go, he plays lead guitar. He's in a punk band. Awesome. He's going places. So I can watch him and, and you know, we're together. We can share and work and share ideas. He, yes, he's using... A different medium is using music but we're very similar and i can see that i haven't changed that much you know? we're getting to that moment where your passion for food turned into something that you know giving back social socially responsible and helping the homeless you something happened in 2004 and i'll let you tell us which in fact you shared on a ted talk but mm-hmm. something happened to in the world and, and i'll let you tell us a little bit about that and what it led to yeah, so at the time, 2004, I was, uh, by the way, I should say, I decided pretty early on, uh, before I reached 21, that I wanted to have my own organization and I wanted to, oh, okay. every Good. every job I would ever do would be different. So when that time came, I had a breadth of experience, which is not kind of normal in the cooking world. It's normally you yeah. stick to one kind of genre. Anyway, uh, so in 2004, I was the culinary ambassador for Unilever. And so I'd gone into some uh, lots of restaurants, lots of ships, lots of hotels, various different things. But I'd got to this point where I was working for an FMCG company, um, working on food development, and they had uh, I'd become a massive pain to them because I was, uh, you know, such a, a such a um, I'm preloaded with, you know. We have to do it the right way, or we don't do it at all. Way. No, that's interesting. Um, so that is me. It's where I met Alistair Creamer, by the way. Just yeah. Okay. Share friend. And so, um, when the tsunami happened in two thousand and four, it was Boxing Death. I'm sure you guys remember it. Yes. And um, it went right across Asia. Um, I had worked on cruise ships and merchant ships, and so I was remembering all the people that I had met in my journeys. And um, I'd also just um, 
had my son Joseph uh, with my uh, girlfriend, and we were watching the TV, watching everything unfold minute by minute, hour by hour. You'll remember it well, I'm sure. Yeah. And I took Joseph up to go and give him a little bath upstairs, and then I was watching all the water coming out of the tap, and I had this moment of, oh, my God, what about all the people I know and I met? Yeah. And so I, I said to uh, Annette, um, look, I'm gonna, I want to do something. And she was very fully supportive, all the time thinking, yeah, but you're not going to do something. <laughs> you know, you're just uh-huh. saying it. And, of course, I wasn't. And so I spent the whole night trying to contact um, all the various aid agencies, uh, NGOs out there that were, that were kind of gearing themselves up to getting involved with the recovery of people and, and you know, trying to respond to it. Um, massive, yeah. Yeah, and every single one, uh, by all of them, said, no, refuse me. You know, I kept saying, I'm a chef, I can cook for people, I can, I've got a good pair of hands, you know. And every single one was like, we don't, we, we've pre-trained people, we don't need it. And so I, oh, wow. yeah, so I was very lucky because the chairman of Unilever at the time, um, uh, I'd been teaching him how to cook. And so I just rang him up on the day after and said, look, you know, I want, I want to go out. You know, will you support me? And, to, you know, speak to my lot to say it's okay. So he did. Um, sent him an wow. email. He paid for my plane ticket. He he arranged. Uh, we arranged together, really, um, lots and lots of boxes of of Unilever products to for me to take out and and go and just find out what I was, you know. So I, we I, I met a bunch of people out there that we very quickly gathered a team. Uh, we hired a, a couple of vans and a mini uh, mini truck, and we went and found a place called Perelier, which is just near Hikadur in Sri Lanka. It's where there was the biggest natural train disaster in the world because the wave hit it twice and, and two and a half two and a half thousand people died on the train and another two and a half thousand died in the surrounding very poor area of Sri Lanka. Um, and so we set up a camp there and we, a lot of people had been buried at that point, but they were talking about three days later. Um, the Italian government and the army had buried people in sand dunes. Um, and then the surrounding sort of villages, they were very, because they were very poor areas. So they all ran into the, basically the forest and the jungles there. And then they started to come out as we started to bed, to bed ourselves in. And so it was, a, it was a ground-shifting, life-changing moment where I learned about displacement. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you what you do remember that the moment you must have landed there. I mean, oh, what I was, was that like? I mean, that has to be so, <laughs> uh, forever in your, your brain and heart. Yeah. It, when, when I first went there, I, it was like, number one, it was very emotional because I had a three-month-old son and I had abandoned him and his mum. Um and and they they knew what I was like, so you know, not my son obviously, but my yeah, my girlfriend at the time was understood that I had this drive and I needed to wanted to do so. So she did support it, but when, as soon as I landed, it hit me. It was like, God, what are you doing? And then suddenly it was like a scene from Mash, you know, like the airport was crazy. Sure. There's so many people there trying. To, and and to be honest with you, is it, it was irresponsible. I didn't have a plan. Um, I had loads of stuff which I didn't know if people needed it or not. That was my next question. You arrived, like, okay, now uh, what? Yeah, yeah. 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 And, but I was very lucky because I bumped into a photographer 
And that photographer used to, he was uh, from the Evening Standard. He had just come back from the south of Sri Lanka, come up back up to the airport. And he said, um, we got chatting. He said, you've got to go to, and he told me the village. He said, there's a train gone over. There's thousands of people that are lost. There's thousands of people that have lost people. Um, it's chaos and there's no one there. So, you, you know, that's where you should go. So that's what we did. And we, and, you know, we all, I literally walked through the terminal and picked people up as we went. Oh and, um, and so we drove all night and, and that's where we, that's where we found ourselves. It was. But- a life changing moment. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it's you know, you're talking about food, but at that point, you're there. You're just trying to save people. I mean, where, where do you get the where do you get the space and the resources to then cook for them? Is that what you did there, or that's when you came back yeah, and yeah, started your foundation? No, no, no. So no, that's exactly what I did there. Um, I mean, I did a, I did a m- number of different things, but the main thing I did was cook for volunteers. So we set okay. up the camp. The only the only buildings that survived in that area were government buildings and religious buildings. So I'm talking. There was a school that, although it lost its roof and, and its internal walls, the main structure was there. But we had two bus stops, and we had a temple, um, and that was all we had. And there was cars up in the buildings. There was boats in the side of buildings. Oh there was oh. it was you know trees down everywhere. And so the first thing we did is we got the school and we turned the school into a kind of a hospital space. Um, we turned, we had, there was a big bus shelter and we turned that into a classroom and then, and just to keep the kids, to give the kids some structure. Um, and then there was an outbuilding that for some reason had been built really well and I turned that into a kitchen. And so um, it was a little, you know, we, I mean, you know, obviously if you went into inland, there were shops and stores and things that, that were still operating, so we were able to buy stuff with our own money. And so I set up a little kitchen. Um, I cooked for people. And um, Unilever's North Stock Cubes came in very handy. That trip. Okay. Yeah, but, <laughs> so so then uh, that's life-changing. So something happened that you said you always wanted to do, get involved more with, with food and the, the power of food, as you've put it before. So when did then this, this was the start and the catalyst that started the beyond food foundation or what, when was that already in the works before? So, so what happened is I, I took a little farm building out in Surrey, which is where I was working and living at the time. Um, and I started a very small cookery school and started to shape the idea of use of connecting people with food and through food. So I cook with people. We have a conversation. Uh, they take that conversation and make change in their own, environment so whether that's their family whether that's their friendship group or whether that is a business that's hired me to do that so it started that in that vein um very small very tiny like six people at a time and i would just cook with them and um i thought the local people would really embrace this and it would be something really different of course that didn't happen it was it was companies that would come leadership teams and they would come and they'd hang out for two days and they'd cook with me they'd have conversations that they would never have had before they'd engage with each other like they never had before and they made change within their own organizations and that's when i realized okay going back to my mum and dad allowing me to make biscuits and everyone sitting around the table together and as i was slapping each other around the head and having lots of laughter and um, the occasional discussion and you know it was everything that i'd ever done and everything i wanted to do 
your your phrase I've heard many times is power of food and how you're turning, you know, everything seems to be lining up for you with the help of Unilever then beyond food foundation and your, your recognition of the, the, the real, the homeless problem in London. And then you kind of started putting that together. And I love the fact that you, you as a, a chef had, you knew something more to the world, but the power of food, as you say, but there's something more than just cooking for, I think I read somewhere for, wealthy people to eat great food, you want to do something more with it. So I'll, I'll, mm. I'll tip it off again there. Yeah, so very quickly, um, we, I moved into London. I found a, uh, an old homeless hostel. It had just been closed down by the government. It was uh, not able to keep up to modern living day standards. A beautiful Georgian building in the middle of Soho. Um, and I just happened to meet them at the right time. And I was a young like feisty chef wanting to make a social change and realizing the food could we, we could do it with wealthy people and with that money i could then help people that had been displaced mm-hmm. um and so um I, I approached the the it's called the house saint barnabas i approached them and said look you know you've just closed i just i need a place how about we work together and that's where it really started and oh, so wow. So we were, I'd employed, there were 69 women that had been living in the hostel that had all been turfed out and had been moved on. I found them all and I brought them back into um, into the house of St. Barnabas and we trained them. And so we opened up. Oh my up God, for, that's wonderful. Yeah, wow. so, we, so Beyond Food, before it used to be called Beyond Boil, it became an events company that trained and um, helped homeless people and people that had been excluded from society and use hospital, my hospitality skills and, and, and that to service our guests. And from all the money we put into it, got reinvested. Oh. Um, I mean, li- as a listener, they'd say, wow, that's so great. But you, that must have been enormously challenging because some of these people, the fact that they were going to go from homeless or troubled to trained to become chefs and things, that, that, that couldn't have been easy, the process. Um, and we were, and we learned as we went along. But I remember one day the um, we call them the Department of Working Pensions. They're the people that are, that are the ones that sort of support people on state benefits. And um, came knocked on the door and said, "We heard that you were training people. They're working here. You're not paying them." And I said, "No, you know we're we're a startup. We haven't got any money, but yeah. we're, but we're we're investing in them." They said, "But they're they're taking off state benefit." And I was like, "And." So they're getting, oh money. they're getting money. They were like, well, you can't do that. And I was like, well, why not? I mean, I'm training them, giving them my time for nothing. You're paying them to support them and house them. Well, surely when they're ready and they're ready to stand on their own two feet, that's perfect because then they will come right. off state benefits, right? You're training them to move on and get a life and yeah. get paid. Yeah. So, yeah. so we had this huge debate. And in the end, it was like, well, why don't you not come in and work with me? You know, if I'm doing it wrong, um, let me, you know, work with me. And so we did, and they've supported us ever since. You know, it was this, oh idea, this, this, this idea that, yeah, you have to help people before they can stand on their own two feet, you know. Not and just keep they, giving them money, just train them, you know. Yeah, to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't yeah. asking for any money from the government. I didn't ask them for any money. I wasn't asking them for any rates relief or tax relief or anything. I was a, a normal business. Um, what I didn't realize, I was becoming a social enterprise. And in those days, that was, this is like now, what, 2000 and six, seven, something like that. And so social business didn't really exist, not in the, the way it does these days. Yes. So um, we ended up um, doing some great work. We helped a lot of people. We, we learned an awful lot. We made a lot of mistakes. Um, 
And it is true to say that um, in the end, uh, myself and the organization that I created Beyond Oil had um, kind of created a little beast of its own because the place that we were at, the, the building, uh, was run by a, a charitable foundation. And they thought, well, you know, we could do this without us kind of thing. We'll do it. Oh now, now, now we've seen it in it work we can do yeah, this on model and it works yeah. and so we, we had a pretty abrupt ending to that and i learned an awful lot about business and contracts yeah. <laughs> so we started to connect with homeless organizations specifically so i'm talking people like shelter crisis thames reed st mungo's these are these are these big organizations in and around london that are literally taking people off the street and giving them temporary accommodation and whilst they're doing that trying to give them services to try and change their lives. Mm. And of course, in, you know, here we come as this prolific young kind of hospitality organization saying, let's skill these people up, let's use skills to try and get them to um, work and learn out, um, themselves out of it. What we were really doing is we, were, we started to prepare them to change their lives. That's really what my skill is. It wasn't the cooking mm. was, was a mere... Um, was a mere kind of catalyst to try to get them in the okay, room. Okay, that's interesting. And so I, because I had a chef's jacket on, whilst I'm preparing food and canapes and amazing dinners for clients, I'm saying to them, well, how did you get yourself in this situation then while I'm peeling the potatoes? You know, well, what, what happened there? Oh, have you thought about changing? Well, maybe you could change this way or that way, or maybe maybe you could adopt this or that idea. And suddenly I was developing a methodology of change. And yeah. um, and we now that that has now become what we call fresh life, um, and that is my medium of, of helping uh, what I now call unravel the unravelment of people because everybody can unravel, right? So so the you know the, the the necessity of food you've obviously was you kind of leveraged that into to training these people to have a better life and have a life, but you know they're learning from you. I mean, I, as I listened to you, what what do you think some of the things that they taught you? Uh, um, the, no, the first thing I have to say with with people that we we support, and, and by the way, Beyond Boil then became Beyond Food, and and mm-hmm. obviously we moved on into creating brigade, but. What, what what it is, is you've got people that have lost everything. Now, they might have lost it 20, 30 years ago, and the trauma is deep set, and they find themselves homeless many years later. That's sort of changing now after the pandemic. But, but it, you know, that, that kind of loss, I, I, I used to call it the threat, losing the thread of life, you know. And slowly but slowly, you just lose a little bit of control, or maybe you weren't even given it at the start. Yeah. When, when you've lost that much, when you've lost a house or you've lost your belongings or a, or a family or money or whatever, to overcome that challenge is unbelievable. To, and people do it all the time. Even just to look after yourself on the street when you've got nothing, to keep yourself safe, keep yourself fed, yeah. keep yourself warm. Even if that means you've had to break the law to do it, Whatever the means are, if you can survive it and take a step forward with with us, I think that's amazing. And I, I've learned so much about resilience and about you know really kind of bouncing back from from that situation and grabbing hold of the opportunity that we offer. And I, I I'm so impressed with everybody that we've ever worked with. Um, but it's not easy, as you said. 
Yeah, I mean, and it's, I think it's at its foundation, it's it's food. Food is is that connection that people have yeah. that has allowed you to do that. But you know, the the education within the food, it's less about what they're making or how they're making it. It's it's the process and giving them their their self confidence, their dignity back, and, and and preparing them out there to kind of leave. And do you, and on that note, do you do they then? F- fly off, leave the nest, as they say, or they stay and work with you, a lot of them? How's it work? So we've, we've recently changed our model. So we've moved away from just being about homelessness and being about all people at unravel. So this is, it could be a homeless person. It could be a kid coming out of a pupil referral unit. It might be someone coming out of the care world, you know, care lever. It might be someone walking out of prison or somebody that's walked out of a bereavement counseling group. It can be literally anyone. I don't care what walk of life they've come from. Um, and the, the earlier we can get them, the better, because obviously when trauma starts to deeply set in, it's, it's more difficult. Yeah. Um, and that idea of getting them into a room and getting them inspired around food, just to, to, to get the conversation started, is everything. But um, we used to run an apprenticeship scheme. It, it ran for about two years. Um, it, after the pandemic, we realized it was too long. Um, and so we've changed our model to being we do we run fresh life for three weeks, which is a like I say it's it's like unlocking all of the doors that were ever locked in your life to realise that you can you know see what that life longing in front of you and go for it. That's what fresh life does, and it uses food and well being as a starting point. Um, and then we'll offer four weeks work experience in the brigade, which is a social enterprise restaurant that we that we run. Um, and that in, enables them to have a go, have a go at life, have a go at you know working, have a go at being in a team, have a go at standing your own two feet. And in and four weeks, I honestly, you won't believe this, guys, but four weeks is long enough. So that's seven weeks in total, but it's long enough to get for someone to go, the, the, the light switch to be put on and well, go, yeah, I, believe I, it. Want it. I believe it. So, so then it's about making connections with employers and uh, you know, people that can provide the, 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 the next level support that they, that they require, which is usually about stability more than anything, whether it's yeah. a home or a job or, you know, whatever. But that's, it's, it's, it's quite a unique experience, I have to say. Well, well, not to get too deep into the admin and mission process, but I mean, how you have to limit who you take in. How do, how do they get that opportunity? Is it just you meet with them and you decide they're a good candidate? I mean, there's so many homeless. I was so going to ask go. the same question. Because yeah. you're in New York anyway. If you're walking around, I mean, clearly a lot of the homeless here now are obviously severely mentally ill. Like, like right. not capable. Um, That's a really good point. Mental I illness. Mean, uh, like, you, yeah. Apparently like schizophrenic or something. I mean, I don't know what right. it is, but yeah. yelling at, at nothing, uh, that kind yeah. of thing. I mean, I, was there some sort of vetting process? So, so they have to apply. We, we like them to have uh, an organization that can refer them. So if, if they come off straight off the street and they've got no referral agent, we will give them one. So someone okay. that they can get used to and, and you know, get a roof over their head and start the understanding of who we're dealing with. Because you are right. We've got a public restaurant. We can't just stick everybody in there without any knowing exactly. who they are. Yeah. So there's yeah. a little process, a little eligibility process. But we will literally take anyone. At that first stage, we would like to know what has gone on in their life if they're willing to tell us, but that takes time. Trust takes time. Um, mm. so the first thing we do is we give them a bit of love. We give them a family 
values and family um, situation to, to feel part of. So that's the first week. And at that point, they start to develop trust and then they start to tell us a little bit more, you know, what if they've got a criminal conviction or, or what their situation is, if they're on medication or whatever. And by week three, we've developed um, a, a full trust. So normally if they haven't told us something, then we'll get to know. But literally at that stage, listen, we, were, we, we are willing to work with just about anyone. Um, and, and obviously, depending on what their history is and what their opportunity is but going forward, but really it's about their attitude. You know, if they've got a good attitude, we can do anything with anybody. Yeah. If, they, yeah. if, if we can't get overcome the attitude or if there's a mental health issue that is preventing them from being in a group and functioning in that group, then obviously then we can, we can cross-refer them to another service that is more you know, specific to their needs. But, but I would say eight out of ten really are ready to take that step forward. And the better we are at telling our story, the better we are at getting those referrals that, Work. I mean, you must have met some amazing people on the way. I mean, every now and then you probably have found a, although you train many, a, a real diamond in the rough, if you will. Like wow. I said, this guy or this woman just needed somebody yeah. to acknowledge them. And uh, you know, I'm sure you have some incredible stories yeah. about just real success stories of some yeah. of your, your, yeah. Uh, I've got That's, some, I've got some amazing, honestly, I've, I've you know, mm-hmm. I've so many over the years, but you, you talked about acknowledgement. That's the first thing. Just being acknowledged that you're a human being, yeah. and, and something's gone wrong. And yeah. there's a group of people like uh, like our foundation, and there are others that that are there just to kind of heal, listen, help, support, and inspire. That's the key for us. It's the inspirational piece because we don't want to just give them a town to go and get a job. No, give, no, no. You know, that's not that's not good. They and they won't keep it anyway. I wrote a book, by the way, called How to Get a Job and Keep It, because it's that you know, you want to give them an amazing job, you know, something yeah. that they're passionate about and really brings meaning uh, to their life. So that's where the food comes in, the hospitality. Yeah, I mean, and, and you use a word in your description is I found perfect. I mean, some people, for whatever reason, their life unraveled you know that's and you like some they probably didn't suddenly it was some to for some it just happened and and it just you know you're helping them get back on track which is amazing what's the older 20 uh, year old simon how different is a 20 year old or 70 year old simon now i know you said you're still the same but what do you learn the most in this journey about yourself not just the people you've helped what are, what are some of the things that have changed you and i know food is the at the core of it but beyond food um, well, uh, the other thing I haven't told you is um, Joseph's mum, my son's mum. We got ma- we, we got married after being on, aware of the tsunami, and oh, we created yeah, and we created Brigade with PwC, the accountancy firm. So we did it together, and that was all about partnerships and partnerships, meaningful partnerships. So there's a lot of you know a lot of the time I'm talking is about working with other people and collaborating because you can't do it all on your own. So in the early days, the younger me thought I could do everything on my own. I didn't need anybody. And the older me knows that's not true. I just can't. And as much as I might think I'm amazing. (laughs) um, So your ego, put a little bit of ego aside. You realize you can't do it all. Yeah. So I learned to compromise. That's that's one a a big big thing of mine. Um, I am still impatient, but I put it. I can control a lot more. Um, And you know, so that that's. That's that's one thing. My my uh, Annette passed away. She had cancer, 
And so the, dri the driving, that lived experience of loss and getting, uh, you know, having an amazing son and had driven me even further into wanting to help more people, not less people. So I think the other learning thing is about having something really inside you that, that burns like a fire to make sure that you keep going. And I, I use that lived experience all the time. And, and uh, my team, every single member of my team has lived experience as well. They've got a story or something that they can relate to the people that walk through the door in some way, shape or form. I've never been homeless. And, but, you know, I've got something that I can go, I, I, I know how that might feel. Um, and so I think that, you know, as I get a bit older, uh, I realize that, you know, we've all got to give a bit of ourselves, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You ever think about what, what, how your life would be different if you never did this? I mean, could you imagine if you, let's say you went on a different path, do you think there is a path that floats in the back of your head? Well, if I didn't do this, even though I'm passionate, I might've done that. Have you ever dabbled with those thoughts? Uh, I, I, I dabble more of the, oh my God, if I hadn't have done this, I would have I ran into nothing. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's a good answer. That's a man. really good answer. I mean, do you, and, and again, I'm, I know you've expressed why you do it, but if you really stop and think, you know, why do you still do it? I mean, what drives you? Is it, is it, it's obviously not the food, it's, it's the helping, but is there a way you can articulate it to others when you talk about what, why do you really do this? It's a lot of, a lot of work and, and it's wonderful work, but just something, a little more about what drives you and why you still do it. The fact is, if we didn't do it in the way that we do it, I don't think anyone would do it that way. And that is a driving factor for me. We, we, we've got something, we've kept it small, you know, it's not global, it's not, not trying, to change, trying to change 100,000 lives, it's trying to change a few thousand lives every year. Um, and, it, and if we didn't do it, I fear that nobody would do it. So that's one driving factor. The second driving factor is the people around me. So I recently got remarried. Um, my wife, Congratulations. Thank you. My wife also believes in the change. The staff around me, they all believe in the change of people. You know, my stakeholders, the trustees of the charity and, and other people are in other organizations that support the charity for work all believe in it. And so my driving factor is to keep them on track. Um, and, it, and, you know, like I say, I'm a... I'm a um, excuse the word, but as fertile and creative as I ever was, and so you know, until I'm, until I feel like I'm not making a difference anymore, I guess I'll keep going. Well, as far as you and the foundation, what's next for Simon? Um, for me, I'm starting. I'm 51 uh, tomorrow, actually, and um, <laughs> starting, <laughs> starting to think about what what would be next. And I do have a little idea I could throw at you if you wanted, because one yep. one I one idea could be we'll go and open another restaurant somewhere, but I'm not sure that that's really what I want to do. Um, so the idea is taking the spirit of what we've done with Beyond Food and the restaurant. And trying to help, um, if you like, a town, for example. So could you take the principles of opening one restaurant, but rather than opening a restaurant, you do it with all the restaurants that are in that town already. And so you, what you mm -hmm. do is you take the seed of the idea of helping people through training, through inspiration, through aspirational work, and then you then work with, you know, 
five or six restaurants in, in, a, in a town to try to offer those opportunities, which are broader than just one restaurant, or could be a cafe or a theatre or whatever, you know, um, a business. So I'm, I'm, that's, I'm thinking about that at the moment. Um, and I suppose that's a little bit about legacy and yeah. the way you take yeah. yourself, but I can't give that's you... That's it, legacy, yeah. I can't yeah. really give you a definitive answer right now. Okay. You know, you've said so many wonderful things, but I'd like to ask if there's anything that comes to your head for the, the listeners, the gray matters, that your you know final words, dare I say, of wisdom from this life journey and your passion, any reflections and thoughts that you want to share with us and, uh, and, and the listeners now? I, my thought is I want to talk about the kitchen table because the kitchen table is, a, is an amazing space, whether it's in our house or a, a workplace, and, and who's sitting around the table and, and just make sure that it's, every seat's full. Um, yeah, and you know, right, yeah. and if you've got a spare one, then maybe offer it out to someone that you, you don't think has anywhere other table to go. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gray Matters Podcast. Please rate and review it and be sure to tell your friends too. And please visit beyondfood.org.uk to learn more about Beyond Food Foundation. For more information about the Gray Matters Podcast, go to thegraymatters.org. And please subscribe to the Gray Matters wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to thank my guest, Simon Boyle, my co-host, Tony Hoyland, and a special thanks to you, the listener. I'm Todd Harrington. Until next time.